morning. Our sermon meditation this morning is Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 10. This is the word of God. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this is indeed your word, and these are your people, the sheep of your pasture. And they have come here hungry, and so we pray, Father, that you would feed them. We pray that your word would do its work in our lives, that it would engage our minds and enliven our hearts and even curtail our wills, all to the glory of Christ. May we be conformed more and more into the image of your Son. Father, indeed, we would see Jesus here today, and so we pray that you would obscure your messenger and show us only him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, As you know, this week our news cycle was dominated by the story of the search for that missing Ocean Gate Titan submersible. It was attempting, of course, to visit the wreckage of the Titanic on the the ocean floor, what, some 12,000 feet below the surface. They left several days ago, but then they just disappeared. For a few days, no one knew what happened. But we all were concerned, if you were like me, you were concerned that they were trapped, maybe. We figured they were running out of air, that's what the media was telling us. And so the rush was on to find them and attempt a rescue. Of course, on Thursday, we found out that they had, in fact, perished because there was apparently a a catastrophic loss of pressure during their descent. And so I think mercifully, mercifully they would have died probably instantaneously. Nonetheless, much of the week, many of us thought of the dead as living, didn't we? I certainly did. If you were like me, you, you envisioned them alive and you wondered what was going through their minds as they potentially sat there on the ocean floor waiting, waiting for days. And as... Time went by as the clock was ticking and as they were running out of air and we just could not get to them in time. We did the only thing that we could do. We prayed. We prayed for them. Maybe you said a prayer for them. I don't normally pray for strangers, but in this case, I prayed for them. The story just captivated my attention. 
We prayed for a miracle. We prayed for them to come back from the depths of the sea. I think people all over the world were praying for them. Let me ask you something. Did you envision them praying? I did. I, I cannot imagine them not praying. It doesn't matter whether they were Christians or even religious. I think if you're trapped in the depths of the sea, you would pray, wouldn't you? Now, if you've seen that movie, Castaway, I like that movie with Tom Hanks in it, right? But it's totally implausible, right? He's trapped on an island all by himself in the middle of the ocean, and what does he not do the entire movie? He doesn't pray. Well, that's a modern-day modern Robinson Crusoe for you, right? But I think you'd be praying, wouldn't you? What would you be praying? What, what would you pray if you found yourself trapped at the bottom of the sea? What would you be praying if you found yourself in the belly of a fish? In the belly of Sheol? You'd pray some gut prayers, wouldn't you? No pun intended. You'd pray, Lord, save me, right? Get me out of here. But then if you were there for long enough, you might pray some more sophisticated prayers, right? You might pray or better sing Psalm 51, especially if you thought you were there because of your sin, right? We sing that every Sunday. You probably pray the Lord's Prayer. That would certainly come to mind, wouldn't it? You'd probably sing or recite every psalm or song that you know. How about the prayer of Jonah? Would you pray that prayer? I wonder, does it even occur to us that we could pray the prayer of Jonah? Because the prayer of Jonah is not that well known, is it? Jonah's prayer isn't well known. But Jonah and the whale are, of course, right? Thank you, Veggie Tales, for that. <laughs> now, everyone knows about Jonah and the whale. That's all of, verse, of one verse, right? Verse 17 here, maybe also verse 10 of chapter 2. But it gets all the press, gets all the attention. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Is that even possible? I mean, has anyone ever been swallowed by a whale and survived? Apparently, James Bartley was. James Bartley is known as a modern-day Jonah. Legend has it that he was swallowed by a whale while he was on a, a whaling expedition around the turn of the 19th century. He went overboard, and then when the men of the ship harpooned a sperm whale and hauled it on board, they cut it open, and they found him in the stomach of the whale. He was, he was bleached. He was blinded for the rest of his life. But he was alive. Or so the story goes. Anyway, you know that sailors like to tell fish tales, right? It's true, sperm whales, they can swallow animals whole. They can... They swallow giant squid sometimes, but their stomachs, they, they crush their prey. Besides that, there's no real oxygen to breathe in the belly of a whale. Yes, whales do breathe oxygen, so maybe it's possible that there's a, a pocket of air in the belly of a whale. But as it pertains to Jonah, this isn't a whale, is it? It's a fish. You thought I had a mistake there, right? It's a great fish. There's a Hebrew word for whale, Leviathan, but that's not the word that's used here. Instead, the word that's used here is dog. Not dog, but dog. Dog gadol, the great fish. And fish, of course, don't breathe oxygen. 
My point is that this is impossible. This is impossible. This is a miracle. This is a miracle with a capital M. We tend to throw that word around. But this is really a miracle. This is basically an account of death and resurrection from the dead. Let me clarify that just a bit. First of all, when I say it's not possible, of course I don't mean that God didn't actually do this. I believe Jonah was a historical figure. We've already established that, right? We saw that he actually prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. Found that in 2 Kings 14. And that he was, uh, I believe that he was truly preserved in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights. I believe it because it says it happened here, and I also believe it because Jesus said it happened. In Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus went on to say that he's the sign of Jonah. So if we believe that Jesus actually died and actually rose again from the dead... Well, then I believe that Jonah died and was raised to life three days later. But when I say that Jonah died and was raised to life, I'm not saying that he actually perished, that he actually lost his life. I believe somehow God supernaturally preserved his life. But what we shouldn't do is find some scientific explanation for how he survived. Why not? Because it's a miracle. And because this is an account that testifies to death and resurrection. That's what we're meant to see here. This is an account that testifies to death and resurrection in Christ Jesus. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. This is an account that testifies to Jesus, and this is an account that testifies to the resurrection from the dead. Therefore, this is a prayer that reminds us of the hope of resurrection in the face of death because of Christ Jesus. And that's really what I want us to, to focus on this morning. This prayer reminds us of the hope of resurrection in the face of death because of Christ Jesus. I'd like to take that step by step, that statement step by step, and break it down just a little bit. So then first, this prayer reminds us, it really encourages us to pray in the face of death. Notice in verse 2. In verse 2, Jonah says, He cried to the Lord out of the belly of Sheol. What's Sheol? Sheol's the place of the dead. It's the grave. It's the pit. It's not hell. But it's not a good place, right? It's not a place where you enjoy spiritual release from your body. You know, the Jews didn't romanticize the grave the way the Greeks did. We've been influenced by Greek thought probably more than we know. It needs to be corrected, but that's probably a sermon for another time. The Sheol is the grave. And where's the grave? It's down, right? It's, it's down in the depths. In this case, it's down in the depths of the ocean. Remember that we've been witnessing Jonah traveling down all along. He went down to Joppa, went down to the ship, down to sleep, down into the water, down into the belly of a fish, and he says, down into the belly of Sheol. By the way, while this is a true account, there's some strong symbolism here. First, Jonah goes down into the sea. The sea represents the nations. 
Isaiah 60, verse 5 says this. It says, The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Jonah goes into the sea, but he also goes down into a fish. The fish, likewise, represents the Gentiles. For example, in Ezekiel 47, we're given a picture of water flowing out from the temple, and it flows into the Dead Sea, where it makes everything fresh. It turns salt water into fresh water so that fish of many kinds can live there. And this, too, is a picture of God's inclusion of the nations in his economy of salvation. This is the gospel going out to the Gentiles and them being enfolded into the church. So Jonah, who's surrounded by water, is also swallowed by a fish. Jonah, who represents Israel, is swallowed up by the Gentiles. I wonder, is this a picture of exile? Could it be that the book of Jonah was written when the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon? How might that color how we interpret this prayer from Jonah's lips that calls for resurrected life out of death? Indeed, we know that the Lord returned them to their land, right? After death comes resurrection. So there's a lot of symbolism here with Jonah's descent, with him going down, 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 and also with him being swallowed by a fish. But there's also some irony as well, isn't there? Jonah's been running away from the Lord, and he's been silent up to this point. So what does the Lord do? Well, first he gives him what he wants, right? He sends him as far away from his presence as possible. He sends him down into the sea. But he does this so that Jonah will open his lips, so that he will finally turn to God in prayer. The Lord sends his prophet to rock bottom to break his silence. And Jonah finally begins to pray in his distress, in his despair, in the deep and dark descent of death. Jonah finally begins praying. You know, what a comfort the words of the psalmist are in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Right? Where, where shall I flee from your presence? Remember, Jonah wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. Obviously, right? But if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Our God is in Sheol. And from Sheol, he hears our prayers. Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that God hears the prayers of desperate people who are frankly just getting what they deserve? Do you believe that God pursues such people? The Lord didn't let Jonah flee from his presence. The very first words we read this morning were, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. That word and, it can also be translated but because they're the same word in Hebrew, the same conjunction. If we turn that to but, but the Lord appointed a great fish. Doesn't that hearken us back to verse 4 of chapter 1 where it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea? You see, the Lord keeps stopping Jonah. He didn't let him run away, did he? But Yahweh, but the Lord. Those may be the, the sweetest words in all of Scripture, but the Lord. Jonah's trying to get away. He's trying to even kill himself, as we saw last week. But the Lord won't let him. He, Jonah had said, throw me overboard. But now he realizes in his prayer to the Lord, it was you, Yahweh, who cast me into the sea. God cast Jonah into the sea 
in order to save him. You know, we tend to think of this as an act of judgment upon his servant. And in one sense, I guess it's true that if you were to be sent to the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, you'd certainly feel like that was the Lord's chastisement, wouldn't you? But we also recognize that God's judgment is also an act of mercy. Christian, if you find yourself low today, if you find yourself in the depths of Sheol, I hope you'll see that God's act of judgment may actually be an act of grace. He may be calling you to repentance. The hound of heaven, he pursued Jonah. He would not let him go. He cast him into Sheol so that he would cry out to him, so that he would find him. Ultimately, so that he would understand that salvation belongs to the Lord, so that he would worship the Lord once again. And listen, it doesn't matter if your prayers, if you're found in the belly of Sheol right now, it doesn't matter if your prayers aren't perfect. This is truly an imperfect prayer from an imperfect man. We've already established the profile of Jonah. We know that it isn't flattering, right? He hated the Ninevites. He preferred that they would go to hell rather than be converted. He had also kept silent on a ship full of, full of heathens who, who proved to be more religious than he was, right? They were actually praying. They were praying to their gods as they knew how to do. Jonah kept silent. This is an imperfect man, and it's an imperfect prayer. It's hard to say about Scripture, right? But this is, this is an imperfect prayer. When you look at it, when you study it, you notice that it's really nothing more than a compilation of borrowed prayers from righteous sufferers. Jonah is basically ripping off the Psalms here. He's quoting various Psalms. Look, look for example, at verses 5 and 6 with me. Let me reread those verses, and then we'll compare um, those verses to some that, are, that come from Psalm 18, the Psalm of David, a, a more righteous person. Jonah says in verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the root of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. What David writes, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Pretty similar, isn't it? Then also in verse 7, Jonah says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. David continues, In my distress I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Or compare verse 9. Verse 9 to some verses that we find in Psalm 116. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord, says Jonah. The psalmist says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Very similar. There are numerous other examples that we could consider here, but frankly, I don't want to get sidetracked. There are quotations or allusions to Psalm 120, to Psalm 88, Psalm 33, maybe even Lamentations chapter 3. If Lamentations 3 is in view, then indeed it would have to be post-exilic, but I'm not necessarily saying it is. Does, does all of this borrowing of language, does it strike you as a bit contrived? 
I mean, we live in a world that puts a tremendous, um, a, tr a tremendous premium on being authentic, right? Be yourself. Express yourself. We shouldn't borrow somebody else's words and make them our own, should we? I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the Psalms teach us how to pray. We need to be taught how to pray. Our children certainly need to be taught how to pray, right? If you have little kids, if you have little kids, you know this is true. When are they most engaged in our worship service? For my son, it's when we kneel, right? Something physical, something tangible. But generally speaking, when are they most engaged? When we're singing Psalm 51? When we're singing the doxology? When we're singing the Gloria Patri? When we're saying, reciting the Lord's Prayer together? Right? We're all God's children. We all need to be taught how to pray. Teach us to pray, Lord. That's a good confession, or that's a good um, request from Christ's disciples. The Psalms, they teach us to pray, especially when we're in distress. Remember that Jesus himself, he invoked the Psalms in his distress from the cross. From Psalm 22, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 31, he said, into your hand I commit my spirit. You see, the Psalms, they were our Lord's prayer book. They were our Lord's song book. I'm so glad we teach the Psalms to our children. You know, it was such an encouragement for me to see the kids of Summer Sanctus take their song books home as a souvenir. I thought that was just the coolest thing. By the way, the highlight of Summer Sanctus, I don't know if he's in the sanctuary here, but Nathan Whittlesey teaching our children to sing, let all things now living in parts, right? And then us going to the cafeteria and offering that as a blessing to, to the food staff, right? But also an offering, a sweet aroma to the Lord. But it was such a, a cool thing that they took their songbooks home as souvenirs. They had all their friends sign them. I want my kids, I'm sure you do too, I want my kids to be able to recall the Psalms if and when they find themselves in trouble. But, you know, we might object. Jonah, both before this episode as well as after it, he proved himself to be insincere, didn't he? Yes, that's true. I'll even grant you that this prayer comes off as a bit self-pitying. You cast me into the deeps. Your, your, your waves and billows pass over me. I'm driven away from your sight, right? All sounds a bit dramatic considering Jonah was the one running from God. He just got what he deserved. Nonetheless, despite our sin, despite our stupidity, despite our stubbornness, our Father invites our prayers. He always, always invites our prayers. We shouldn't shut our mouths when we're cut, caught in sin. That is the most important time to pray. The Apostle James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And the implication that James has is that the sick or suffering person may be that way because of sin. The reason I say that is that James immediately adds the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Pray. Pray always. D despite sin that sends us down, despite our stubbornness that sends us into the belly of Sheol, even to the gates of hell, pray. 
We're invited to look to God in prayer no matter where we are, no matter why we are there, no matter what we've done. Pray to God who saves. Pray in faith. You're you're invited to express the hope of new life in the face of death. And that's really the flip side of praying in distress. Not only are we encouraged to pray in the face of sin and death, this prayer also teaches us to confess hope in resurrection, hope in new life because of Christ Jesus. This is a prayer about resurrection from death. Do you see that in it? I want you to notice the structure of the descent and the ascent in this prayer. It might be helpful if you already, if you have your Bibles open at this point, because there's a significant cutout. There we go. A significant literary device, a chiasm that I want to point, direct your attention to. Pastor Jeffrey would be so thrilled I'm focusing on a chiasm, right? Verse 17 of chapter 1. What does it say the Lord appointed the fish to do? To swallow up Jonah, right? And then in verse 10, what is the fish commanded to do? Vomit out Jonah, right? Those are your bookends, swallowing up and vomiting out for your chiasm. Then in verse 2, what do we see Jonah doing? We see him breaking his silence and crying in his distress, right? He says, I, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. What do we see in verse, verse 9? We see that he has committed to raise his voice once again, but no longer in distress. Now it's in thanksgiving. So we have that contrast between distress and thanksgiving. Then in verse 4, what does it say? Jonah looks to the temple. Verse 4, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. It expresses this hope. He's not assured of it, but he's expressing hope that God will will see him and hear him once again. But then in verse 7, he expresses assurance that God has heard him from his temple. Once again, he, he mentions his temple. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. His assurance is growing. Which brings us to the, the center of this chiasm, right? Verse 6. Verse 6 says, At the root of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's going down into Sheol. He's going down into death. Yet. Yet is the big hinge for the chiasm. He says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Up from the pit. That's a picture of resurrection. Whatever appears at the center, right, in a chiasm, that's the central point. Jonah dies, he goes down to Sheol, he goes to the pit, but he's also resurrected. You brought my life up from the pit. See, after death comes resurrection. Not only is this prayer a chiasm, right? The whole of chapters 1 and 2 really serve as a giant chiasm of death and resurrection. Jonah was called to arise, but what did he do? Instead, he went down, right? He went down to Joppa, down into the ship, down to sleep, down into the fish, down into the belly of Sheol. But now we see him coming up again. He comes up from the pit. He envisions God's holy temple. Where's that located? On Mount Zion, high and lifted up. He's sacrificing. He envisions himself sacrificing on dry land. And boom, the fish vomits him out. 
After death comes resurrection. Now maybe this was indeed a picture for Israel of life after the exile, of life after being taken captive in the belly of a fish. But we know that this is really a message for all of us because we know that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. We know that the scriptures testify to Christ. Jesus himself interpreted the scriptures showing that even the prophets were speaking of him. Jonah's death and resurrection is about Jesus. Just as Jonah was in the belly of Sheol, three days and three nights, right? So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is about Jesus. This is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's about our death and resurrection if we're united to Christ, if we're found in him. Paul says that those of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We died with him. We were buried with him in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. If we died with him, what's that trustworthy saying? We will also live with him. After death comes resurrection. To the Ephesians, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, there it is again, right? But the Lord, but God, but God made you alive together with Christ. He took us out of Sheol and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. After death comes resurrection. But death does come first. God calls us to equip our minds for death in order that we might be raised to life with Christ. We must be crucified crucified with Christ. We must no longer live, but he must live in us. You know, interestingly enough, and I'll just kind of close with this, interestingly enough, we see a similar chiastic structure employed in the New Testament to describe the descent and the ascent of our Lord, to describe Christ's death and resurrection. And it has everything to do with us. Because to the Philippians, Paul says this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, right? He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form. Right? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He has given him the name that is above all names, right? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for saving us from our sins. We thank you that you do not abandon us to the grave, that you do not leave us in our sins, but that you call us to prayer, 
no matter where we are. Father, we pray that in Christ we would see our own death and resurrection, that we would turn to you in faith and rest in his work on our behalf. And we pray, Father, that you would hear our prayers, that you would be gracious and merciful, which is your nature. We pray that we would not presume upon this, Father, but that we would come humbly to you in prayer and repentance, asking your forgiveness. May you hear us, Father. May you treat us kindly for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.